Here we go. Oh. Hi, I'm Drew Cronin. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am a general pediatrician and I practice transgender medicine as well. And I'm Lisette. I am, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm the proud mother of a 12-year-old trans son, advocate, and small business owner. And this is I Stand By You. With Lizette and Drew. Together, we talk about allyship, building community, and showing up for one another. Welcome. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited about today's interviewee. We have Ellen Kahn, who is the Senior Director of Programs and Partnership at the Human Rights Campaign. And she oversees like a, their huge foundation portfolio, which is children, youth, families, and family programming. So welcoming schools, all children, all families, youth well-being, parents for transgender equality, which I am part of. And um, you've also done tons of work with HIV AIDS, health equity, and now you are helping kind of pave the way with the work that we're doing, uh, that HRC is doing with HBCU programming and visibility. Um, we, I really wanted you on because, and I always say this, that you are a badass, a quiet badass, because you never ever pat yourself on the back to talk about all the advocacy work you've done throughout the years. And um, you are always working on giving people like my families, like myself, um, a space to be visible and to advocate for ourselves. And it's empowering to be around you. And I'm just excited to have you on here. So thank you. Well, I'm, I'm really delighted. And it's nice to uh, talk with you a little bit outside of our usual uh, meetings focused on the work we're doing at HRC, and I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. I loved reading your bio because, you know, we've spent two years getting to know each other, but I was really impressed with all the work you did around LGBTQ parenting and building parent and building families. What was that like in the beginning? What... What brought you to that space? Yeah, um, I love that stretch of my life when I was not only living life as like a new out lesbian parent, part of what we used to call the gaby boom, um, but also <laughs> able to, in my professional role at the time, develop uh, opportunities for LGBT folks who are thinking about parenting to connect and learn from each other folks already raising children to build community and support. Um, so I really loved it. I, um, I was just in a nutshell, I was running uh, the lesbian services health program at Whitman Walker clinic in DC, which is one of the larger mm. HIV slash LGBTQ health clinics. Um, and they had a robust set of programs that were supporting the LGBT community and I was overseeing the, the sort of range of, of programs focused on, it was called Lesbian Services Program for good reasons in terms of when it was um, established and what was happening politically and the importance of having, you know, lesbian in the title that was led and, and led by, founded by lesbian advocates and health advocates. So, uh, but over time, we served, you know, the, the broader community of women who parted with women, lesbian, bi, pan women. Um, we were one of the first programs to serve um, transmasculine folks, uh, trans guys, um, non-binary folks. So just want to say that it was really very comprehensive. And one of the programs was focused on helping, at the time, primarily lesbian-identified folks learn how to build families. Um, after that, expanded to the whole entire LGBT community. So we had all these groups like Maybe Baby and learning about different paths to parenthood and you know, legal considerations, financial, building community, navigating schools, all of that. So I just, and at the, around the same time those programs were really um, exploding, I, my former partner and I were starting a family. So we were kind of 
bringing our own kids up in this um, very like queer parent um, uh, kind of activist community. When was this? Um, well, I I would well my let me do the math, and I'm not I don't claim to be great <laughs> at math, but this I can do. My oldest daughter is about to turn twenty one. So okay. it is. A, I guess it was around the late '90s um, when the pro, the um, the programs focused on parenting uh, really expanded here in DC. We actually um, uh, started a larger nonprofit called Rainbow Families um, uh, that uh, focused ex- exclusively on supporting and connecting and educating LGBT folks who were either prospective parents or already raising kids. So we start. It was, I would say like mid mid to later 90s it really started to expand quite a bit and my first kid was born in 99. Wow so you had laid the groundwork that was and I remember seeing your name on things when I was thinking about having a family in 2003-2004 as I was adopting my son. Um, I remember seeing your name on some of that like I google stuff and find it although I don't think it was google then maybe it was. (laughs) Yeah, I um, I actually really loved that we um, started doing more to support um, uh, men who were considering parenthood. I mean, and, you know, thinking about adoption, for example, and I'm sure you know this, you know, there was this false narrative for years that, you know, men were not um, just were not natural parents, um, just all the myths and mythology about, you know, mothers or the nurturers, the caregivers, you know, the ones who kiss the boo-boo and, you know, the dads just go to work and stuff that I think a lot of us really in some level bought into, even though our, we were living our lives like so outside of that box. But, you know, it's, it's like anything. It's like any bias that you just, it sort of lands early and you carry it. And I think I remember talking with um, adoption agencies about how to be more inclusive of the the LGBT community. And honestly, like they're wrapping their heads around like the two mom family, especially if it's two moms and neither one of them is too butch or, you know, I mean, like the sort of (laughs) palatable, you know, the palatable lesbian couple. And then as you start talking about like gay men, especially if you talk about single gay men, suddenly there's, you know, like a little bit of tension or even suspicion. And, and, and it's not, it's, it's not like that in many, you know, dots on the map anymore. But for when you, when you started your family, I think we were still, Drew, we were still seeing, I think a lot of that where gay men had, you know, all these extra layers of trying to prove that they actually could parent. And one of the things that really, bothered me so much about that and it ties to what you were saying Lizette about my work in HIV you know when when people started dying of AIDS it was gay men primarily and lesbians and other queer people who literally were like wiping sweat and changing diapers and caring for complete strangers yeah. uh, because those folks had been you know sort of thrown away by their families or estranged from their families. So to, to not be able to see that actually, yeah, if you want to put a child in my arms who is quote unquote a stranger to me, you better believe I'm going to know how to take care of that kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know I dove right into the adoption um, piece because it, it's relevant to where we are today. I mean, this conversation is still happening, even though we've made so much progress but I want to know about young Ellen like what brought you into advocacy I know we've had talks about your involvement in ACT UP and what was like what brought you into that space well I have to be honest yeah I mean I have to be honest and say that I was a little bit of a sort of um somewhat aimless uh college student I did pretty well through high school I came out pretty young. Definitely had a lot of the classic, um, you know, carrying a secret, feeling depressed, feeling cut off from my family, dabbling a little too much in drugs and alcohol. Just very classic sort of, especially like '70s type of coming out story. Um, and just found solace with like a few of my gay friends who were in theater, 
few of my, you know, the 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 girls in so on softball, you know, very like stereotype, you know, found this <laughs> small group of like queer kids who just got through life together with, you know, a lot of challenges. Um, and um, a, a sort of academically, I was a bit aimless. Um, I did go to college. I went to. I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to Temple University. Stayed local. I didn't go far away to school. And um, and I really started to. I was excited about the women's studies classes and political science and philosophy. And I started to think. Uh, I start. I realized how large the world was and how many ideas there were. And I and I started to get a little bit more connected to a sense of like social justice and activism. Um, and it, I think, honestly, it was, um, and this is so cliche, but, it, you know, it. I think it was a bit of a, like, an, uh, not accidental, but un, an unexpected um, transformation into doing advocacy work and LGBTQ work because of HIV. It was like I was really just in a space where I was having fun. I, you know, had friends, um, but I, I didn't have a sense of purpose or passion. And when our, the first person in my circle of friends got sick um, and, and HIV AIDS was like real and in our lives and would, would always be, I started doing volunteer work um, with a local HIV service organization. I got hired there soon after as an office manager, which back in the day when you only had five full-time staff people in the middle of an epidemic, I was actually a case manager. I was mm. problem solving. I was doing crisis intervention, even though I was an office manager. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, and that, and that really was kind of the beginning of my journey to go to, you know, school to get a master in social work and so on, so on. I, um, I don't say this in any way to age either of you, but I was born, <laughs> I was born in 1980. And so a lot of, and, you know, I think about where I grew up. So I grew up, I was born in Tucson um, the internet, I think, has allowed for youth to access information. Obviously, we know that the internet has opened the world up to our kids. And I remember mm-hmm. growing up in that time and not really knowing, right? Like, it was the Southwest, Tucson was small, um, and I was really young. And I listened to a lot of the stories like Dr. Cronin and you, like Dr. Cronin talks about, uh, you know, handing out needles and um, the activism work, what was, what would you tell someone who is younger, who is now going into advocacy? Because I feel like sometimes I must seem so naive in my advocacy because I'm like, I want it now. And you both have been in advocacy for so long. And seen so many changes, but you also exist like you also were advocating in a time when it was harder than it is now, when visibility was less. What um what would you tell somebody younger about about being patient or is should we not be patient? Is it been too long? Like because sometimes I think, God, I must annoy people who've been in advocacy for a very long time because I'm like, y'all need to get it together today, right? Um so what are your thoughts around that? I don't know if I asked that right, but. Well, I, th- I think it's a great question. I mean, I don't know. Drew, Drew would probably um, really relate to this. I mean, it was it, literally people were dying every, yeah. ev- just every day. Every day you learn about another friend or colleague or neighbor um, who was diagnosed, who was sick. Uh, it was like such a, such an, just a, an, a crisis of, you know, such proportion that um, I, I didn't feel like there was an, any uh, other option than to be, try to be part of the solution. And certainly you can't imagine being patient when people are dying like that. I think, you know, I can sort of think about patience when it comes to passing a piece of legislation just because the, the it's such a cumbersome process and that sort of thing. But patience when somebody is literally you know just when when people are literally dying and 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 you know things are just no one's paying attention you know certainly like our leadership wasn't paying attention and and it was very much because at the time you know many people found 
the gay community ex- expendable, uh, you know, mm-hmm. are us expendable, and many people probably still do, um, and just were disgusted by, you know, uh, people with HIV, just like we're pariahs. And so, you know, it was literally just, you had to be so super scrappy, right? I mean, Drew, you know, it was, it was like just people needed, uh, you know, people needed, everything was an emergency, a place to live, medication. Um, you know, I, I just didn't, didn't, couldn't imagine an alternative to just be trying to be part of the solution. Yeah. And I mean, I felt like I, I, and sometimes I say I was very lucky. I came out in the late 80s. Um, so a lot of the groundwork and the fighting had been laid down already. Um, and I didn't really start being more of an activist until probably 8990. Um, and I would say, but I completely agree with you. At that time, it was, um, I mean, the friends I knew who were sick, and it was... I could put a face to every single person mm-hmm. I, every time I fought for something. Um, the thing I also remember, and I'm sure you experienced this as well, is there were the people who were the generation of activists before us who some of them were saying, slow down, don't ask for so much, don't make so mm-hmm. much noise. Um, and so one thing I would tell young activists is go for it. You're the ones who have the passion and the, I don't know, the, the um, optimism um, to push for things in ways that other people can't. And I'm guilty of now being one of those people who sometimes I hear people doing things and I'm like, oh, come on, kids, slow it down. Me too. <laughs> I'm a little guilty of that. Um, I think, you know, I was thinking about just as, as listening to you and thinking more about the question with patients. I mean, I... Um, I, I certainly have to exercise patience. Uh, I feel like um, you can be both patient, um, understanding of you know the the way things work and often work slowly, and keep the fire in your belly and keep your eye on the prize and keep doing the work every day. I mean, I feel like you can sort of hold both of those things. Um, mm-hmm. For me, I you know, just, um, you know, I think I'm generally reality based about, uh, I'm, I, I believe that so much more is possible to create a wor- the, the world that we all want for our kids and our families. Um, I mean, it is so, uh, angering to know that even though we have made tremendous progress and certainly thinking about the early days of HIV, when, Nobody would even let someone with HIV and like gay men in general, you didn't even want them to come into your medical office or be in your space and people were getting fired. It was terrible. Um, And yes, we are in a very different place. However, there are plenty of LGBT folks and I think probably trans folks are feeling the heaviest burden of this that, you know, they are facing discrimination in healthcare every day. They are even if it's not overt, like, no, I will not see you. I don't like who you are. It's, you know, the no eye contact. It's the sort of like not really showing any compassion. It's just like, okay, I have to see this patient. I'm just going to sort of hold my nose and see this patient. And I mean, uh, you know, we feel, many of us feel that still, you know, um, and, you know, doing a lot of work in LGBT health and trying to really push for, um, more um, inclusive, you know, um, affirming care. Uh, there's still folks coming out of nursing school and medical school and social work school. And, you know, we have such high expectations of these folks, and yet too many are either naive or or really just overtly anti-LGBTQ. And we still have to, you know, we still have to bump into these folks in our lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I say this over and over again. It changed our quality of life, finding a doctor who was affirming. Um, I couldn't imagine living in a city or a town where the only doctor closest to me was not affirming. Right. And I know Dr. Cronin will say like he has people drive from the smaller towns around us to see them. Um, Uh, him and Dr. Kurtzman and it's like 
I mean, I couldn't imagine being someone of low income, um, having other barriers, and then not having access to medical care. Even just as someone who is cis and straight, me as a parent having somebody that I can go to and ask questions and feel safe enough to ask those questions and know that I'm going to get the help I need, right? Um, And so it just, it's a game changer. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right about, um, you know, the, I mean, I'm very aware I'm I'm white, I'm financially stable, I live right outside of D.C. in an area that has just all kinds of LGBTQ affirming services, and it's a very, you know, liberal place, and, you know, like, all those things, you know, for me, uh, sometimes the the only thing that feels difficult is deciding if and when to, to be out or come out, even though I look, I mean, I just look like such a lesbo and I'm really proud of that. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes people, I mean, still people don't always know, like, do I still get asked on occasion, you know, uh, if I, if I'm, you know, if I have a husband or, you know, there are certain, um, sort of assumptions made, not all that often, but, um, so for me, like, I don't, I just have very low level, um, concerns about safety, like who to come out to and when, when I'm not really in my comfort zone, but every time you add a layer, like if you are not white, if you are, you know, if you uh, don't have um, perfect English skills, if you or you don't speak English at all, if you don't have f- financial security, if you are really not out much in your life for other reasons, like fear of being rejected or losing your job. I mean, do you, like that, I, I just talking about it, I can sort of feel you know, this, my sort of chest get tight like that, that, and, and right. And so be going to a local clinic or the nearest hospital emergency room and navigating all of those things and your LGBTQ identity. I mean, yes, we have a ton of work to do to try to chisel away at all of the things that are operating against folks, especially when it comes to healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've become more aware of that. Um, I have to say, in the early days of the advocacy I was doing, I really felt like I was definitely working for everyone with what I was doing. I mean, that's what my heart told me I wanted to do. And looking back on it, I think that's been an evolution in activism, is that we have really learned about intersectionality and the different needs of different people at different times. Um and I think it's been one of the great developments in activism recently. Yeah, I agree. I fear that um, although many of us, and I'll, I'll say us, although I'm still, you know, I'm definitely evolving and, and have a lot of uh, progress to make. Um, I would say even pre-Trump, I was definitely working on and and really stretching myself around being part of a, to really address, um, you know, how, uh, you know, race, race inequity and all kinds Mm -hmm. of inequity are, um, hurting the community. And, and, and to, you know, I, I definitely have, uh, concern for folks, you know, I, I do LGBTQ advocacy work, but I'm very committed to, you know, like the work of color of change and black lives matter and, um, immigration rights and, and animal rights and all kinds of things. So I, I think I have like, a very overflowing plate of social justice issues that I'm very concerned about. Um, but I, I do sort of think that like after Trump got elected and we really saw like a, the ugliest underbelly that for me, again, part of my privilege is that I wasn't sort of having to face, you know, um, uh, KKK members in my neighborhood or, yeah. you know, you know, but, but to like, we all suddenly got a look at the fact that this is not two or four or 8% of the population that is just motivated and really living for hate, right. It, or xenophobia. It's like, it's a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people get pulled into that. People who are afraid, people who have a lot of like r- racial bias and, and, or even just, flat out like do not like anyone who's not white and so so i think that the reality of that the shock of that 
helped to bring together a lot of these movements that were working in ways that were too detached. Um, and I even remember at HRC, right after Trump got elected, there was an event at HRC where the, uh, the, the executive directors and presidents of all the largest Latinx orgs, black orgs, immigration rights orgs, women's orgs, all came together to really sort of strategize around, look, you know, we, we must be, you know, we must get ourselves um, organized and, and, and support each other because clearly like the enemy, you know, we have a common enemy basically. So I think, I do think, you know, that while I think the community generally has been moving toward like a more intersectional agenda, the last couple of years really forced that out of a sense of survival. Mm-hmm. The coalition building, and even then it's still so disjointed. Like I got serious FOMO just hearing you describe that meeting right now. It's like, oh, to be a fly on the wall. Um, because mm-hmm. I think even on a grassroots level, we're still not organizing as effectively as we could together in an intersectional way that would bring us all forward. And I think it's hard because it's like exhausting. It's exhaustive work. Um, And so it's, it'll be interesting to see how we all move forward, especially after this pandemic and, uh, and as Facebook allows people to share the violence and atrocities that are happening, I think it's harder to look away. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, like, once we're able to leave our homes or (laughs) leave or, you know, come back into the world, how we'll move forward in this election cycle. I think it's hard right now to consider, you know, what that would look like. Speaking of energy, I just listed all these programs when I introduced you, like welcoming schools, all children, all families. How did you and P-Tech, how did you, because I find like me as like a baby advocate, right? I'm like only like four years in or something. Um, How do you make programming happen? Like what was it? Because you've had an effective way of leading. How did you stay energized and how did you get people to like, like buy into your dream of these programs, especially welcoming schools. I know that mm-hmm. I had read the bio ab- about welcoming schools a while back, and it was a, a program out of out of Massachusetts. But you mm-hmm. really helped pioneer pushing that on a national platform. How did you? How do you keep that energy going? Well, um, I think the energy comes from uh, recognizing a need. Uh, a need, a need, sometimes an opportunity, or sometimes a combination of a need and opportunity, but always a need. And I, I mean, Welcoming Schools is a good example in that, as I was sharing a few minutes ago, um, uh, my kids were like elementary school age when I started my job at HRC, and um, I was still very involved. I think I was still the board president of Rainbow Families, which I mentioned was like the, the D.C. area LGBTQ parenting group. Um, and you know, one of the things I was experiencing and heard from folks not only in D.C., but really all over when I would go to conferences or have conference calls on the topic of LGBT parenting was this, you know, the real uh, worries parents had and bad experiences they were having when their kids kind of left the security of their, you know, little nest and were going through the halls of, you know, walking through the doors and halls of, of schools where, they were suddenly, you know, um, the, the kid with two moms or the kid with two dads yeah. or, you know, and, and um, it raises a lot of anxiety and worry. And, and so, so for me, it was, okay, we've identified a need to have some kind of training program, resources, tools, um, way to engage uh, school principals, school leaders, educators to really understand the importance of making sure all families, including our families, are represented, that, you know, if there's any kind of, you know, anti-LGBTQ comments made, that there's a the right kind of response, teachable moments, that, um, you know, that teachers knew how to have conversations with younger kids about who's in your family in ways that all children could feel comfortable. Um, so, so it was really about a need and I did learn about a program that was just um, kind of in a very early stage in Boston that was really developed by parents like me who had younger kids um, who were LGBTQ 
Um, they were, you know, connected with uh, PFLAG in Boston and GLSEN in Boston and brought some folks together. And I met the, the folks who created that um, program, which at the time was like a half-inch binder that just had, you know, some bulleted lists and a few lesson plans. And I said, look, you know, this is exactly what I was hired to do at HRC was to find ways to, you know, bring resources that help our families from just like online things you read to actual things that change the landscapes in your school. So long story short, you know, through lots of incredible, smart, talented people building that program with me and really leading it with very little for me now. Um, it is now in, you know, schools in 40 states. We have 65 trained facilitators across the country who can go into schools and deliver this great professional development. Um, and now what's, what's really interesting and kind of speaks to what we were saying about just like timelines, history, when we first started welcoming schools, um, it was like, uh, I would say 2006 or seven. Um, we were like, we were hiding with like not even putting the HRC logo in most of our things. We were, you know, we expected people to slam the door in our face. Fast forward, you know, post-marriage equality, um, having, you know, the Obama administration really lead around LGBT inclusion in schools, changes in people's attitudes, all that sort of stuff. Kids coming out earlier. Bam, we have more demand for our training than we can meet most of the time. Um, so that, that to me is, um, that's, that, that makes me feel very good, you know, that, that we are making progress and that the program was able to grow kind of exponentially so that as the need and interest grew on the part of school leaders and educators and school districts, we could actually deliver. So that's, so that was a longer answer probably than you were looking for. But for me, the energy comes from, you know, identifying needs and trying to meet them. And I think, I mean, Lisa, you know, from our work with the parent council, I mean, so much of our work has been that, oh, we need, we need a guide for parents to think about when or if they should go public as a parent of a trans kid. Oh, we need a guide that helps parents of non-binary kids really understand more about their kids' experience because there's not much out there. And then, you know, we identify the need and we get together and we create something and we push it out. So I get very, you, can't you hear the excitement in my voice? I get very excited about that. <laughs> I get excited about it too. I, yeah. <laughs> I think what I loved a lot about welcoming schools too was that not, it, it, it allows for space for as our conversations evolve. Because I know like this is something that we, even as a, as a P-TECH council, like our language keeps evolving when, as we learn more about inclusive language of non-binary people and as needs shift around trans folks. And what I loved about welcoming schools is that it allowed a conversation to occur that would not just encompass uh, LGBTQIA parents, but also it's kind of paved the way for trans youth, right? Like if there's a new kid at school, there's a program that will help you have those conversations about what that means to have um, gender nonconforming trans people around you. And right. I just loved, I love, I love seeing programs that can shift as we as human beings shift and grow. Um, and so I get excited about that too. What, what, oh, go ahead, Drew. Oh, I was just, I'm curious with welcoming schools is I know, um, there's, I know, I know there are lots of schools that have done it. What have you used to get into schools that are ones who perhaps someone handed the information on welcoming schools and some stuff about its curriculum to school leaders mm -hmm. and they threw it in the trash. Oh, that um, happens. Yeah, it does. <laughs> just for example. Um, well, <laughs> I can think I, of one school specifically, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, look, there, honestly, there are some schools and school districts in, in that, you know, either the, the particular uh, principal or higher level leaders of a school are really just resistant to, look, welcoming schools is, primarily for K through five, it can apply for to K through eight, but it's really developed for to meet the um, for a, a school culture that has students K through five and 
thinking about the sort of developmental ages and stages within that that span of the the six or seven grades uh and so so it so it is it is not sort of a one size fits all like it, it would not the kids in high school would laugh at it in a way, you know, but mm-hmm. it's really developed for K through five and the kinds of conversations younger kids have and the kind of book, you know, the books that, that are, that, that you're reading and that we build lesson plans around. Um, so, but because it's K through five, we, it is, uh, you know, it seems so controversial, right. To folks who um, don't see the connection or, you know, the biggest pushback for years was, Oh, we don't even, we can't even say the words gay and lesbian around our students. Like we, we, yeah. you know, the, we can't, can't do this. So here's something funny we did. Well, not fun, but clever. We did, you know, about eight or nine years ago, because that was the sort of, you know, uh, default answer from a lot of more conservative or moderate schools. We actually hired an amazing filmmaker to make a film about that kind of um, makes the case for welcoming schools. And so she went to a school in Alabama and a school in, in uh, New England and interviewed uh, K through five age kids and asked them like, do you know what the word gay means? Do you know what the word lesbian means? Do you know anyone who's gay or lesbian? It was, and it was GNL at the time, very intentionally. And it's basically these kids are, you, it's so clear that when you saw this finished video, if you were a school superintendent, counselor, principal, wow, like I need to get into these conversations with my kids because, yes, they're already having these conversations and they're already hearing uh, really negative things. Um, and, and no parent, no teachers are intervening. And you have these like six or seven or eight year old kids saying, you know, like my my aunt's gay or my brother's gay or my parents are gay and you know, the te- and I was being bullied and I was being teased and the teachers did nothing. So, you know, I think stories, we, we had the video, but I mean, it's like, Lizette, what you do, where you, you go and you tell your story about your family and you say, my kid is, you know, is, is hearing negative comments about who he is or whatever the case might be. So, you know, trying to tug on the heartstrings, make it clear that you might not think this is a problem, but it is. Um, you know, certainly, um, Andrew, you know how important um, science is. Uh, it, it sh- you shouldn't have to point to statistics in order to get someone to actually understand that anti-gay, you know, bullying is not good for kids. We have tons of data, so we're really trying to remind people this is what we're this is what young people are telling us. This is what we're seeing in schools. Do you want to be part of the problem or part of the solution? Um, and I think also just reminding folks when you, the work, just using welcoming schools as an example, it really helps schools address all kinds of bias based bullying very intentionally because it, we want it, we want to create a school environment that is safe and supportive for all students, not just for LGBTQ students, but all these students have to grow up in an increasingly diverse community. Uh, if you talk to the executive director of Google or IBM or American Airlines or Wells Fargo or, uh, you know, any of these organizations, they don't want their workforce of the future includes folks who are coming out of schools and schooling where they were part of a diverse community, you know. So tr- trying to explain that, you, you know, this is in the best interest of all your students to give them a sense of familiarity and vocabulary around all kinds of difference. And that has to include uh, difference around sexual orientation, gender identity, and it serves all the kids in the school. Yeah. And I believe too, like, I, I believe that those who oppose this being taught K through five also have an understanding that if a child, um, learns about diversity and learns empathy about other people who are different than them, then we change the landscape, right? Because now they've grown up, they've gone kindergarten to fifth grade, junior high, high school, knowing Uh and having proximity to somebody who's having a different experience than them. And so you naturally change the landscape of the world in allowing that to happen. And so a lot of times I think about how purposeful um, it is because instinctually we know, right, that if you 
I don't think it's about really indoctrination. Indoctrination is what the word that's used, but I think it has yes. more to do with understanding that there will be a breakdown in bias and, and, and children will learn to love and accept people who are different from them yeah. um, in allowing that yeah. to happen. Yeah. And now you say that, I mean, you know what I don't have a lot of patience for at this stage in my life? I don't have patience for, oh, you know, folks who say, well, you know, uh, I, you know, it's a parent's prerogative to teach their child about gay people or lesbian people. And, you know, the school, this is a personal family matter or, you know, I don't want my children to think it's okay to be gay. Or if you teach this to my children, my child will be LGBTQ. Or they'll be confused about if they're a boy or a girl or blah, 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 fill in the bank and blank. Like, I'm, I'm so tired of that. I mean, those, and it's because we know, because we know now in our lives, and we have known for a while, that these folks who, although they can change, and there are great examples of those who've changed, um, they do so much damage to their kids. Yeah. You know, they just, they are perpetuating such, you know, such anti-LGBTQ bias within their families. And if they're, if their kids happen to be LGBTQ, which some of them are, I mean, you, it's such a toxic environment. Like from the time you, you can even understand the language of your parents that you're hearing like awful things about being LGBTQ or maybe even just generally really having a lot of shame around any kind of like human sexuality or, you know, and just like, Oh, that, that is toxic. Yeah. You gave me chills when you said all those comments, because it flashed me back to all of our uh, sex life curriculum advocacy work that we were doing a few months back. um, Because that's exactly what we were hearing. And we were seeing it was, remarkable to see young children holding signs that said Uh there are only boys there are only girls and i think for us one of the most pivotal moments like a reminder moment of why we uh share our story or why we advocate for youth is because at one of our um at one of our uh rallies we did have a young a young teen come out and say, I told my parents I had to go to the bathroom, but I'm non-binary. And I need you to know that seeing you here means mm. the world to me. Mm-hmm. And then they, they went back and sat with their parents in a room where they were saying all of those things that you just shared. And <sighs> even worse, right? And just that knocking the wind out of me and recognizing yeah. that... It's not just about, you know, Daniel or just about the kids in my vicinity, but for so many children that are voiceless. And I think that that reminder was necessary and heartbreaking. And also that child was brave to come out and do that. Yeah. And those are the same kinds of, I guess, beliefs operating that were that were, um, you know, when you think about the early days of HIV, you know, so many people, you know, operated with that sort of belief system or mindset. And, and, and it's, I think partly why there was just such a lack of empathy, lack of response, lack of willingness and the blame. Oh my gosh, the blame. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's rough. Boy, how do we, how do we get into this space? <laughs> <laughs> No. I was thinking about Anita Bryant, you know, Anita Bryant, who, um, uh, well, you know, talking about sort of, uh, you know, dating us uh, through, um, I mean, Anita Bryant was uh, kind of a letter crusade in Florida. Um, uh-huh. uh, you know, so she was just an awful homophobe and um, led a crusade against LGBT folks being able to adopt or teach in their schools and just all those talking points that were just right out of their like 1970s anti-gay agenda textbook um you know demonizing the sort of um especially you know gay men just being you know pedophiles and all this stuff and um just i mean it's like these folks that you're talking about who are fighting against inclusive sexual health ed or 
you know, throwing their own kids out of the house when they come out. Um, you, you, we'd really like to be done with that. It's just decades and decades and decades. It really, yeah, it still amazes me um, to see, I mean, because I'm, I mean, now I'm like, okay, I'm on a gay father's Facebook group. And, you know, that's something that really has changed the landscape. But there are still a lot of guys on there who talk about, you know, didn't come out till their 30s and their 40s. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now. And I'm like, but you had Will and Grace on TV. Right. And, <laughs> but they, they probably didn't. Um, and honestly, I feel so lucky. I remember the Anita Bryant stuff. And I remember my parents watching that and talking about how horrible she was. Oh, good for um, you. And I could, and that, I was young enough then that just having that, I, I know my life would be very different if I had had parents who had seen her talking and had said, you know, turn it up, we got to start this in our town. Right, right. That's what I was saying about just from the time, you know, even if it's before we have awareness of our own attractions or identities, um, or we're not sort of fully conscious of them, we, we do listen to mm -hmm. what our parents are saying. We listen to what the, you know, whatever radio show they turn, tune into, what their friends and neighbors who come over for coffee or drinks are saying, like really, like kids really pick up on that. Um, and, and then you start asking yourself, would I be okay if I came out? Would this be a safe family for me? Or, oh, I'll, I got to walk the line. And I think certainly, I think maybe my generation was the first where, I mean, I did have a number of friends, uh, mostly meeting them in the bars, like gay men, some some women who who were thrown out of their house. I think I kind of yeah. kept a low profile at home until I was 16 or so, but my parents were divorced, and my father was um, pretty conservative, homophobic, just misogynist, just kind of a, he was like a Trump without the money. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, just really like, just narcissistic and just didn't like anybody who wasn't just like him, including me, I guess. Um, so the fact that my parents were divorced actually helped me, I think, stay safer and healthier because my mother was much more um, open minded. Um, and uh, but but I think um, my, that my generation and certainly older generations, m many folks just kept a focus on like hitting 18 or hitting 21 or whatever that magic number was for them. And then being able to kind of cut the ties and go live their life. Um, and, you know, didn't, if their parents were going to help them with college, they did, you know, didn't want to rock the boat or again, just not knowing how they would support themselves or live somewhere else if they were found out. And so, yeah, I mean, that hasn't stopped for a lot of young people. And, you know, we hear from young people all the time who are, you know, in pretty toxic environments at home and just trying to stay under the radar. That is a, I mean, that's, you know, such a um, factor in mental health for our community yeah. and physical health too. Well, both of you know me really well and you know that I'm super pushy. Um, <laughs> and so my youngest sibling is, um, their gender expression is masculine, but they are a lesbian woman and um, they've talked to me since we've started Daniel's journey. Like I've, I've YouTubed, I've Googled, you know, but, um, they you know, she continues to say like, I'm she, her, and you know, I identify as a lesbian, but I remember when she turned, um, you know, cause I saw the progression in my parents as society progressed. So I was born in the eighties. Um, my youngest sibling was born 14 years after. Um, mm -hmm. so there was more acceptance. It was like, you know, by the time they were a teen, it was the aughts. Um, and obviously we were a more progressive culture. And so I saw my parents progress, but their way of dealing with my sister was like, we just don't say anything. Like, yeah, we just don't talk about it. It is and whatever. And um, I was like, but they're like, my siblings not talking to me about who they're dating or who they have a crush on or, and um, my middle sister was able to tell me about all of her crushes. And I find that if you can't share that with me, then we're signaling that it's not okay. Yeah. And I, and uh, late, the Lady Gaga born this way, it's so cliche, had come out. Like, so yeah, it was like 2008, 
or whatever, my sis, my youngest sibling was still in high school. And I wrote them this letter that was like, yo, like, hey, if you, uh, if you have crushes, like you can talk to me. And I remember them, it was not the right thing to do, right? Because I'm trying to out them. Um, yeah. And so it was not the right thing to do. And my sibling was like, when I'm ready, like, I'll let you know, and it'll be fine. And like now that they're older, they were like, remember when you sent me that really nice letter? I found it. And like, I'm really glad you sent it to me. But it, you know, as teens, it's really hard for them, even if people are trying to create a space of inclusivity. So I think changing the landscape of schools and changing is so important so that they can at least have their peers to rely yeah. on if home doesn't yeah. feel like a good place, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think peers are, I think, um, you know, certainly my kids and your kids' peers are, you know, when, the, the like, kids are really not the problem when it tum- tr- comes to talking about sexual orientation, gender identity, different LGBTQ experiences. Kids are, they know more than their parents, typically. And part of that is because, you know, they're watching shows with LGBTQ characters with a lot of sort of queer nuance. Um, they're celebrities, you know, on YouTube and on TV um, that they can connect to and learn from. I mean, it is a very different. Um, I think some of it that I was kind of laughing to myself when you're talking about your sister when she was a teenager, because like my kids, I think as far as I know, they're both cis heterosexual so far in terms of how they talk about themselves. They won't like they don't talk to me about I feel like I raised my kids in such an open environment um, besides having, you know, queer parents. You know, they were part of a, 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 a congregation that is, you know, where we teach this very inclusive sexual health education. I've been I actually taught it for a bunch of years, you know, and, and you know, they like they've and they've had vocabulary for how to talk about all kinds of things related to um, sexuality and relationships and I mean they don't want to talk to their parents about this stuff they really, really just don't so it was a right it's kind of a hard lesson to or their 28 like, year old sister right like yeah or their 20 right because it was really about like her age I like that's an age during which I think you just like you're mortified at the thought of even talking about you know a crush or what you're feeling or thinking but it, it just I think it's and I'm I only know that now that I'm kind of on the the other side of I mean my younger daughter's um 17 so I'm kind of almost at the over the teen peak and boy it's if if you're um any I mean I've never questioned my ability to parent so many times as as I have during these teenage years (laughs) oh thank goodness (laughs) yeah I mean I used to look for like a time clock to see if I could just punch out for a while you know Oh, my uh, sis- like, wait, can I be, can I please be done here and just kind of punch out? <laughs> my, yeah, my youngest sister is like, I still, I think I was joking around with her and I was like, hey, can you call me when you turn 18? And then like, but we don't need to connect right now. And she took it so to heart. And I was like, I was just teasing because you were a teen and teens are hard. Um, <laughs> and it was like, how dare you didn't want to talk to me until I was 18. And I was like, stop, I was joking. But even yeah. then, like, even then she'll make mistakes. Like um, not too long ago, she came down to visit and was like, Oh, Daniel, you have a girlfriend yet? You have, um, are you, do, who are your crushes? And Daniel would just yeah. look at me. Like, why is the assumption that I would like girls, you know, like, and, ha- yeah. and then sending like a little reminder text to my, my sibling, like, Hey, uh, Daniel sees himself as bi or possibly gay. And so, that makes him feel uncomfortable, right? And yeah. so we're all kind of navigating um, how to be inclusive and how to not go to the default. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it does take a real focus on attention every day, and just, and I think some humility. Um, certainly, in when we work with LGBT with with health providers around LGBT inclusion, especially those working with children and youth, it's like that's a perfect example of what we would share as a very simple best practice, right? To just say, you know, um, have you, have you been sexually active with anyone? Are you, are you dating? Do you, do you have attractions? Do you have, you know, so you're asking about feelings and behavior, not, and not gendering at all. Um, and just, it's, you know, and I think about how we are 
uh, we've just had so many kind of habits and, and almost in a knee-jerk way, even those of us who are working really hard every day at being like very intentional and thoughtful about what we say, oh, you know, I mean, I have this slightly embarrassing moment um, not too long ago where a couple I know, um, a lesbian identified couple in which one, one of the women is like, you know, pretty like traditionally masculine in her presentation or butch and the other's more femme. And I just like, they told me they were going to, you know, start trying to get pregnant. And I, you know, just literally my first like assumption was that it was the more femme woman who was going to get pregnant. So I said some, like I, so my response was kind of based on that and saying, Oh, so you're going to try to get pregnant. And they kind of like giggle a little bit because we know each other well. And then like, no, actually she's going to get pregnant. It was just, and so it was like my own, you know what I mean? Oh my God. How could Ellen Kahn make such a mistake? What's wrong <laughs> with me? <you> know? <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I think we all bump into that. Yeah, and like, or just me saying, oh, man, right now, I'm like, oh, I'm trying to be inclusive Um, (laughs) in even our, just our expressions. Um, Do you mind talking to us a little bit longer? Um, I can do it like another five minutes. I have to get in the shower um, to get ready for for a Zoom thing I'm doing. Okay, well, then we'll just, we'll round it out because there's five minutes left. What sure. are um, three things that you would want allies to do? Well, um, when, when we talk about allies, I'm thinking of folks who are not, um, who don't self-identify as LGBTQ, but are, you know, want to be supportive as a, whether you're a friend, a parent, um, a relative, that sort of thing. So, or a provider. Um, so I'd say three things would be um, uh, just keep, keep learning. Um, read articles, um, you know, read blog posts, read publications that are focused on um, what it means to be LGBTQ affirming, read things about like non-binary identities and queer people of color and just really like keep keep learning. Um, That's an ongoing process. Um, I would say, you know, uh, have, um, I guess, have some humility and patience um just like we were giving example of how all of us occasionally maybe have a mistake or a misstep with our language or our actions where maybe we don't use fully inclusive language or um you know we maybe are seem dismissive of something someone shared or we even maybe say something that's based on stereotypes or something like that because we have just you know been living in a world where, you know, we are handed information and told to believe it. And so we're all on our journey to kind of think outside those boxes. So patient with yourself. Um, and then I'd say third, just like, you know, speak up. Um, not Some of us are more timid by nature, um, less confident. Um, speak up. If you hear or see something that you feel is, you know, homophobic, transphobic, racist, uh, just, you know, wrong. Um, say something in whatever way you can, um, even if it's not right in the moment, um, go back to the person and say that really stung, or I think that was the wrong use of a term, or I feel like that was coming from a place of misinformation or whatever, or just like you're an a-hole, don't ever do that again, whatever it is you want to say, but use your voice and speak up. I love that. You know, I got to do my hair up. (laughs) And with our final question, Ellen, who okay. inspires you? Well, um, I I get inspiration from a lot of my colleagues who are just so full of great ideas and energy and creativity. I get inspired by folks like you, Lizette, um, who are um, just standing up for their kids and taking a lot of risk and being out loud um, about you know their advocacy and folks like. Dr. Cronin, who are um, just committing themselves to uh, making the world a better place through their practice every day. Um, And then there are a few like higher profile people who inspire me. I would say I've always um, just been blown away by Jane Goodall, uh, Mm -hmm. just given her just steadfast, unwavering uh, commitment to her, to her causes, but primarily to like 
preservation of, of, of primates, but also really to um, saving the, the earth. Um, and just like literally her whole life, just uh, never, never changed course on that. Um, I think more, more recent folks, um, Tarana Burke comes to mind, just um, mm-hmm. kind of the catalyst for the Me Too movement. And I think, um, you know, again, very brave, taking a lot of risks as a, particularly as a black woman um, and just, you know, incredibly courageous and, and strategic and um, dynamic. And I, I follow her quite a bit. So those are a couple, couple of like people who aren't just, you know, friends, family, colleagues who, who inspire me. Thank you. Drew, who inspires you this week? Well, this week, um, so I saw um, a video this morning, um, and it really did inspire me by, um, it was Sterling K. Brown, people can find it on Facebook, talking about um, the Ahmad Arbery murder. Mm -hmm. And what he said that I, it was in a way I hadn't heard it before, is that our country was founded on subjugation of people while at the same time saying all men are created equal. And that the only way that that's possible is if you dehumanize people and you Mm -hmm. make them less than human. And um, and with black people, we actually quantified that at, was it three-fifths, four-fifths? Yeah. Um, I mean, when you, you enslave people, you, de- you dehumanize them. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to stop even thinking them of them as people. And the fact that that legacy is still so with mm-hmm. us today. Um, yeah. And I, 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 it's meant that this, I mean, during with this just... <sighs> both horrific and expected um, murder Yeah. Um, that it's really pushed me this week to try and look for things to read, thing, people to listen to, um, and uh, to realize just how lucky I am. Um, it's not, it's not luck. It was laid out for generations that I can, you know, throw on clothes to go out and walk my dog and throw on a mask. And my biggest concern is, is someone going to get within six feet of me that I'm going to have to be rude to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that we need, yeah. that we, it is so far overdue for this to be changed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'll just and, add really quickly. I, I, I so appreciate what you're saying. And I've, I've just been sort of, um, not even knowing sometimes what to say or do about the, mm-hmm. you know, the, just the ongoing murder of black people simply for being black. And one of the things that um, I started reading how to be an anti-racist by yes. Ibram Kendi. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading a lot about white privilege and I just feel like, I mean, there's only so much that I can read. I mean, I get it. Like I get it. And I really have changed the way I live and think, but this is more about like, you know, uh, more um, like compelling every white person uh, to to be actively engaged in in deconstructing racism, and yeah. uh, and it's been helpful to me to sort of think about how I how I actually act, you know, act not just talk and post on Facebook, but yeah. act differently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. I appreciate you. I appreciate you bringing that up. I think that, cause I watched the video, which now I wish I hadn't, but it's so startling that I was telling, I was telling Jose that I, it's been wonderful to see people who never post about black lives matter post yeah. about this incident and say that this is something we can't look away from anymore. Um, yeah. Because he really was just jogging and yeah. it's just, I don't, I don't have words for it either. Um, and, but hopefully it won't, his, his murder won't be something that people forget about next week and that we continue to do more work that needs to be done. Um, so my inspiration, and I mean this wholeheartedly, 
is you, Ellen. You're my inspiration this week. You're my inspiration all the time. For the longest time, um, it was what would Oprah do? And I find myself in advocacy spaces thinking, what would Ellen do in this moment? And I just appreciate all of your hard work and, you know, navigating um, all of the stuff we bring to you all the time with like, we're like, Ellen, help us now. Um, and just like giving us a platform with P-Tech. And um, I just appreciate you so much and all that you've done, all the advocacy work that you've done. And so, yeah, you inspire me all the time. Thank well, that you. means a lot to me and it is mutual. And I really appreciate having the chance today to talk to you and Drew Cronin and um, can't wait to keep doing the good work together. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ellen. Have a good rest Thank of you. your day. Enjoy all right. Thanks, shower. you too. All right. Have a great rest of your day too. Thanks so much. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.